Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. On March 11, 2011, an earthquake triggered a tsunami that damaged the nuclear power plant in Fukushima, Japan. It was the largest nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. Today, five years after the accident, Greenpeace estimates that nearly 100,000 people still haven't returned home. My guest today, Gregory Yazko, was the head of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission at the time. Not a job that anyone grows up planning to be, I think. So uh, when I got there, my first impression was really that there's this tremendous cadre of really dedicated, idealistic safety advocates who just want nothing more than to make sure that nuclear power plants throughout the country are safe. Uh, utility reactors. Utility reactors, that's right. Of uh, which there are how many now? Uh, there are um, about 100. Uh, Down from 104? 104, that's right. right. And operating right now, there's about 98. And the four that closed, um, which were uh, Yankee? Vermont Yankee. Uh, there's a plant in Florida, Crystal River. Two reactors in California, San Onofre. Kiwani, which is in Wisconsin. And then a number of plants have recently announced that they're going to shut down. Uh, Pilgrim in Vermont. Uh, and Fitzpatrick, which is in um, upstate New York. Right. Now, uh, of the ones that have closed, what's been stated in the press is that they're closing for economic reasons, that the uh, the surge of, uh, of natural gas and, uh, to some degree, renewables have, have really made uh, nuclear power very expensive, correct? Yeah, it's really actually a combination of two things. The plant in Florida and the plants, uh, the two reactors in, in California, they actually close because of safety reasons. Uh, the When you think of a nuclear power plant, uh, usually you think of some big kind of concrete dome that encases all the vital components of the reactor, the, the actual reactor engine and all those things. Well, in, in Florida, that plant, they were doing some maintenance and actually broke it sounds a small word, but it was a billion-dollar, two-billion-dollar fix that they needed to do to, to, to fix this broken containment dome. And they actually couldn't operate without it because it's a, it's a fundamental safety How system. did it break? They were doing maintenance um, because nuclear power plants have really not um, operated the way they were supposed to. The parts have worn out earlier. And one of the, the things that has worn out on these reactors is these large components. They're you know, bigger than a, a bus. And so they had to replace some of these, and they've done it in a lot of reactors throughout the country. And, and actually to get them out, they never had doors big enough to get this stuff out because they were never intended to get them out. So they had to actually cut a hole in this giant containment, this concrete structure, which has walls that are you know, 10 feet thick or you know, many, many feet thick. And when they, they cut this hole, they wound up creating this crack that went essentially around the entire dome. And they the just, worst possible thing that could happen. Yeah, exactly. But the thing that you know, in a in a highly technical industry, in an industry that touts itself on on precision, on precision, something that should never forethought. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, because I don't want to, you know, beat it to death about issues of safety. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, certainly in the post nine eleven world, the uh, terrorism threat has been thrown into the wheelbarrow of complaints against you know by anti nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm advocates. 
but prior to that, it was about, obviously, storage, mm-hmm. uh, spent fuel. Mm-hmm. And with other groups that I worked with, it was about exposure to ambient radiation mm-hmm. in that field. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, when you were there, what were the discussions about healthy levels of exposure to ambient radiation near reactors? You know, that, that's always a very controversial topic. And Why? It's, it's very inconclusive. It's hard to know, really, that when you're talking about the very low levels of radiation that you get from just ambient exposure to reactor, it's very hard to, to say one way or another that that's causing any impacts. And we know from studies that have done of people who survived, say, the, the um, nuclear weapons that were detonated in Japan— We certainly know that at very high levels, radiation is clearly harmful. We know that at kind of middle levels, we have very strong evidence that it causes harm. And then when we get into this low area, it's just very, very hard to pinpoint how this impacts people. And I would have people come into my office. There was one group of families uh, who lived in, in, I believe it was in Illinois, and there was a cluster of children in that community. Dresden. Uh, This was around Byron or Braidwood, I believe. Um, so a little bit further inland into the state. And it was a family very well-meaning, very knowledgeable, and very, very concerned about their children. And I, I remember talking to them, and, and we talked about this issue, and they believed that part of the reason for this cancer cluster in this community was generally in young children, was that they were exposed to some kind of radiation from the plant. And what I, what I told them and what I often tell people is there's a lot of people in a lot of communities who work in nuclear power plants who live near them, and we don't see elevated cancer risks. And they made a very important point to me, and they said, but, you know, those are adults. And one of the things that we're learning now more and more is that children respond to radiation in very different ways. So it, it, it's not conclusive one way or another. Um, and did most, the NRC, when you were there, or and to your knowledge, your predecessors, did they want to have a conclusion about that, or did they try to sidestep that? You know, I actually tried to get an answer to that. Uh, the The basis for most of what we know about how radiation impacts people and how it essentially causes cancer is from a study that was done in the 90s, early 90s. And I actually, as chairman, I initiated an update of that study. Who did that study? The NRC? It was actually done by the National Cancer Institute. Uh, and I actually called the head of the National Cancer Institute, and I said, hey, would you like to do this? And he said, no way. <laughs> I don't want to touch that issue. It's, it's right. too, too difficult. It's too inconclusive. And I said, you know, we, we pride ourselves as an agency on being up to date and, and with the best possible information. So I'd like an update of that study. And eventually we, we did some work, and we got the National Academy of Sciences to do a study. Um, And so they started, got a lot of pressure. The industry was very unhappy about it because they were worried it was going to show something. And they were worried it might show something, and in their mind, it would would be a false positive. But nonetheless, it would show something that they'd have to respond to and deal with. And in my mind, it was about finding out information. Um, Unfortunately, actually, just about a year or so ago, um, the NRC decided to cut that effort to update that study. Why? You know, they cited the usual um, concerns about time, resources, uh, which the one thing I learned working in Washington is that whenever somebody cites resources as the reason to not do something, it's usually another reason. What do you think the real reason was? You know, I think it just comes down to the fact that it's a very, very difficult study to do, and the industry continued to pressure them to the point where they convinced them that it wasn't wasn't going to gain them any useful information. And And I think that's wrong. Even no information or a null result, so to speak, a, a result that says everything's fine would have well, been useful. I, I just want to, as a little primer for people, mm-hmm. say, and you and you chime in, or I'll stop for you to give your sure. assessment. 
and this is a very kind of a children's book version of this mm-hmm. even, that uh, nuclear power was developed as a weapon system. Mm-hmm. Some people turned around and said, wow, why don't we run some pipes and boil some water here because mm-hmm. we have this superheated capacity and there's really no business to be had in making just a couple of reactors here and there mm-hmm. to build bomb material. Uh, we're going to have a source of energy, and you know the famous mm-hmm. quote, too cheap to meter, mm-hmm. they said. Yeah. Well, the the commercial industry, as you said, it, all this whole enterprise started with the need to make nuclear weapons. And then essentially people realized, well, we've got to do something else with the technology where everybody across the world is going to build nuclear weapons. So we got to get them kind of focused somewhere else, shift their their mindset a little bit to this commercial nuclear power. And that took a long time to develop because it was a, a risky technology and there were no companies yet who were willing to kind of bet their whole business on this risky technology. So you had to have something called the Price-Anderson Act. Right, Price-Anderson helped facilitate that. Exactly. It provided, essentially, the government said, you know what, if there's an accident, we're going to cover the liability from that accident. The taxpayers are going to cover The taxpayers, essentially. and Or, essentially, we won't, we won't re- reimburse anybody for their damages. But you'll be kept whole as a company. And so that... Once that you kind of a lot of the risk for that company that other that any other enterprise would have to bear. Exactly. Why do yeah. you think that they gave the Price Anderson exemption to that industry? You know, because I think there was a there was a desire to develop this technology. I mean, the government wanted to support it, and because they also wanted to support it internationally, they wanted people to take this technology. You know, you had a get very much a situation where you had the haves and the have-nots. You had the and American who, companies wanted to sell this technology abroad. Absolutely, we're developing a business. Exactly, we're not just sitting there saying, "Well, we want to have." Ne- to nuclear technology as an example for you. Yeah. We want to have nuclear technology as an example of a product we can sell right, to Exactly. You. It was an American technology at that time, right. and you look around the world. They almost, wanted to grow a business. Exactly. They wanted right. to grow a business, and they wanted to divert away from nuclear weapons. So they did what they needed to do, and Price-Anderson was a big piece of it. And um, and then you had, this, you had this Atomic Energy Commission, which had this responsibility to build nuclear weapons, to build nuclear power plants, to regulate nuclear power plants, and all of that just became too much. It was just an overload. And then in the in the late or the early 70s, they split it all off. And they split it all apart. They took away the nuclear weapons work. And they just left the NRC to do the regulation. And so it's supposed to just be the place that thinks nothing more than safety. But also at the same time, you know, I was I, I worked with Ernest Sternglass, mm-hmm. the uh, father, if you will, of the baby tooth study, mm-hmm. which he, he credits and his uh, allies and supporters credit as helping to leverage the nuclear test ban treaty mm-hmm. with Kennedy in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And what Sternglass basically said was that a daughter element of a nuclear reaction from nuclear bombs mm-hmm. and so forth uh, in the atmosphere mimicked calcium in the developing fetus. And so you would mm-hmm. take a children's first set of teeth. When infant children lost their first set of teeth, we could take them. And you saw during a certain periods of time when there was a lot of radiation in the air from, mm-hmm. from bombs, a mm-hmm. spike. And when there was the test ban treaty, it went down. Mm-hmm. And then when the nuclear reactors were being built in the country, it went up again. Mm-hmm. And Sternglass said, you know, ambient uh, exposure is higher than the NRC mm-hmm. or the AEC uh, wants to admit. Then there was, of course, the story that was told that Nixon wanted to have the option in his pocket to bomb Hanoi during the Vietnam War. 
And as a preventive measure, because he didn't want to be accused of poisoning his own citizenry, he had the AEC raise the allowable exposure to radiation mm-hmm. months in advance of the planned bombing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the federal government has played a lot of games mm-hmm. with the American mm-hmm. people about exposure to radiation. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in the early stages of this industry, nobody really nobody really understood this technology. And, and, and to a large extent, people didn't understand the harmful effects of radiation. I mean, it was really until we dropped the nuclear weapons in, in Japan that people really understood. I mean, you, of course, you can go see the archival footage of people looking and watching nuclear weapons tests in the Nevada desert. And of course, those tests were originally done above ground. And then they realize, well, you know what, that's that eventually they recognize that's causing radiation exposures. They I mean there's the the classic community that lives in in uh, in Utah, the so-called downwinders. And uh, who were exposed to radiation from the weapons test because they would wait until the winds were not blowing towards Las Vegas, but blowing in that direction. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of things that were done. I don't, I don't necessarily try to, you know, describe motives to what people were doing and why they did them, but it certainly was a technology that was new and that people didn't fully understand. And, and in a lot of ways, that's what makes— But we understand it now, pretty much. Well, and, and that's what, in a lot of ways, makes it so tragic is that we, we think we understand it better, but in some ways we don't. Um, How so? You, you look at what happened in Japan uh, just five years ago. Um, here was a nuclear power plant that uh, was sitting on the coast of Japan, and there was a massive earthquake and a tsunami, and it wiped out basically every safety system. And you had an accident that was spewing radiation into the atmosphere for six months. And into do you the, get updates about the situation there now? I, I do, um, just periodically. Are it they is, encouraging? Not really. Um, it's it's a it's just a tragedy. It's it's going to be a mess there for decades to come, and there's really not and there's nothing you can do. It's Mother Nature's kind of taken over, and right. as much as we like to think as humans, we're we're all powerful and we can control Mother Nature. At this point, the physics is more powerful. It's just going to disperse a lot of radioactivity into the ocean for decades. To That's come. basically what's going to happen on a slow seeping basis. Yeah, exactly. And there's. There's really nothing that can be done about that. And um, One of the things that people who were long-term members of this debate said was that the Department of Energy uh, very cynically cited these plants where there was as often as possible cross-contamination from chemical contamination so you couldn't figure out who to blame for any kind mm-hmm. of cancer cluster mm-hmm. or soft tissue uh, anomalies that mm-hmm. were there. Oyster Creek had a lot of uh, a high rate of cancer there, higher for childhood cancer. Mm-hmm. It had an autism cluster there. Mm-hmm. There was uh, contamination there from Sibagagi mm-hmm. and a, a union carbide. Mm-hmm. And a woman that was a local advocate there prevailed upon a congressman to give her discretionary funds that were in his budget as a congressman to do some research there. Mm-hmm. And the moment she obtained the funds... Union Carbide settles, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. want all the documents sealed. They don't mm-hmm. want people to know what's underground mm-hmm. underground there. So you have a lot of cross-contamination mm-hmm. there, and you have a lot of working-class people, mm-hmm. people who mm-hmm. really, really rely on those jobs. Mm-hmm. And some of the people I worked with said that the NRC and the, and the Energy Department deliberately cited these plants in places like that. Does that seem true to you? You know, not really. Um, <laughs> no, I'm interested in your opinion. What would seem more true to me is that the right. comp- the power company may have chosen sure, to do sure. it there. Right. And, and, you know, I, I could see maybe reasons why it may have been an That's industrial point, facility. Yeah. Right. Um, because ultimately the sites were chosen by the power companies. The NRC then has to approve the site and, 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 and approve the work that. that was there. I thought they so. were chosen by the... 
Yeah, they were chosen. They're chosen by the power companies initially, um, and then again, the NRC approves it and does those things. So, would it surprise me if somebody had chosen a site that had contamination that you know was suited better to an industrial facility like a nuclear power plant than some something else? Certainly not. I mean, that would certainly make sense. And um, rather than having to clean up, you know, what is a what is a, a potentially messy area, you build an industrial facility over it, and you don't have to deal with that as much. So, um, you know, I, I can see where there's maybe some truth to those those legends and those myths. But but the NRC is not responsible for that. Um, the NRC's ultimately wasn't responsible for the site. The site was responsible. Yeah. I didn't know for, that. I would have thought that the government yeah. was controlling the sites themselves as well. The sites were were private, and that's why there was that difficult transition period because you had this technology which was largely controlled by the government, and then they were saying to the private sector, "Here, take it and do something with it. Make these power plants." And the private sector said, "We don't know anything about that, and we don't want to bet our companies." So, you know, that's where you got Price Anderson, you got all these things. So there was this push to kind of get the private companies to do it. And um, and that was the early legacy of, of, the, of the industry. What nuclear facility is laying on a piece of land right now that most mimics Fukushima in your mind? We're flooding on a massive scale if some weather anomaly were to occur. Where is the Fukushima that, that could potentially happen in the U.S.? It's probably in the Midwest, uh, plants along the Mississippi, along How the Missouri River. How many are there? There's a handful. Uh, Iowa. I actually went the summer of Fukushima. Uh, I actually went to one of these plants Where? in Nebraska. What's it called? It's called Fort Calhoun. And I'll, I'll never forget this. I went in a— Privately owned by an energy— Privately owned by a, a Nebraska utility. And the, the site was almost completely inundated. With water? With water. And you had to walk on an aluminum— plank uh, from kind of where you park your car. A long bridge. (laughs) A long bridge, very long bridge, because there was so much flooding. And what are they saying there about it? Uh, Well, at at the time, you know, the NRC was monitoring it, and the flood levels were not likely to get, like, another six or seven inches higher, which is where the plant would have really been in very serious trouble. Um, But I I just remember— What what happens in the plant? When, when that happens, what happens? Well, everything, the doors are, are sealed. Uh, and to keep the water out. To keep the water out, yeah. Is and it watertight? It is watertight up to a certain level. And they have a level at which they're designed to be watertight. And they were about seven, I think, seven inches below um, the level at which they were no longer watertight. Now, seven inches of water spread out over, you know, the entire floodplain of the, the I guess Nebraska. that's the Missouri River is, right. is a lot of water. But nonetheless, there was already a tremendous flooding there. So that was really close. And it actually, it just so happened that uh, about a year before, some really good folks at the NRC uh, had identified a problem at that plant where they weren't actually watertight to the level that they thought they were. And they identified this and they made them fix it. And thankfully they had because if not, they would have been much, much closer to that kind of breaking point. Is uh, it a densely populated area? I would imagine it's not. It, it was near, uh, I believe it's right outside of Omaha. Um, so the plant's not that far from a, a population center. Is there a discussion? I'm assuming there's a discussion. This is while you were in charge? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there a discussion uh, about what steps need to be taken? I'm assuming you can't raise the building. How do you drop the water level? Yeah, you, you, you shut down the plant. That's the first thing you do. And I mean, they had shut down do you, the plant. Do you dig another floodplain somewhere? You know, there's really nothing the Army you can Corps, do. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing you can do. If the flood, if the floodwaters keep rising, they keep rising. There's nowhere for them to go. There's, exactly. The the flooding was largely a result of Army Corps dams. So they control. It's all this. It's, it's actually fascinating. All this water comes from like Montana and Wyoming, 
all these from the mountains from the mountains and all the snow melts and they had a massive snowpack that year and so all this water comes through a series of dams that are controlled by the army corps of engineers and they have limits on how much water they let go for farming for industrial use for agriculture all these different things and so they control that to a certain extent but if there's so much water they have to let the water go and so they were letting water go, and it was bringing the level of this river up. And it was, you know, they were guaranteeing to us that they weren't going to let open up flood gates enough that it could flood the site more. But nonetheless, it, it, was, a, it was a precarious situation. Where are you from? Upstate New York, from Albany. You're, you're from Albany? Albany, yeah. And what mm-hmm. did your father do? He was an industrial engineer. So, specifically, what kind of work did he do? He worked, he actually worked, I, I like to say my dad's is the history of the um, depleting manufacturing industry in upstate New York. Right. He started out in textiles. Um, in uh, We lived up in Glens Falls, which had a big textile industry. He worked there for a while. He worked in factories. He, he designed assembly lines and figured out how to move products through factories. And uh, um, so he, I got kind of my engineering technical sense from him. Well, are you many siblings? Are you how many siblings? I have one sister. Uh, Is she an engineer too? She's a, she's a, she's a musician. <laughs> so she's a, a musical engineer. Thank God. Someone had to bring some soul into <laughs> That's this, right. kitchen, this dining room table. And then uh, uh, where did you go into grad? Uh, Cornell University. And where did you go to graduate school? Uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And what did you study? Physics. Physicist. So, yeah, I was a, a physicist. And what did you do when you got out of school? I uh, I went. I did a fellowship, uh, which uh, put me in Washington D.C. Uh, as a really great fellowship program uh, from something called the Association for American Association for the Advancement of Science. So it's a big scientific member society, and they take about twenty or thirty uh, fresh PhDs like myself or senior scientists, and they throw them into an office in Congress and kind of introduce you to the political process. And so that's how, kind of how I got my start working in Washington. How long did you do the fellowship? It was a year. And uh, then where did you go? Then I went to work for Harry Reid, a uh, Nevada senator. How long were you with him? Uh, about four years. How, how did working with Reid shape your view of politics? And how did you employ that perspective when you were working at the NRC? You know, the, the thing that I learned from him is that the most important aspect of politics and really what makes politics work is your word. And you have to be honest with people and you have to um, follow through on your commitments. And the thing that he is masterful at, better than anyone I know, is he understands what people mean when they say yes and when they say no. And he knows when a yes means a yes and a yes means a no, and he knows when a no means a no and a no (laughs) means a yes. Coming up, Gregory Yazko on what he thinks is the future of nuclear power. Also, why he resigned as chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission before his term was up. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where I speak with Antonia Juhas, an investigative reporter who continues to cover the effects of the 2010 BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. What this industry has done is taken a natural resource and turned it into a weapon of mass destruction. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Gregory Yasko, physicist and former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. 
How to dispose of nuclear waste has been a problem for scientists since the technology was first invented. I worked a lot on uh, Yucca Mountain, which is the, was the um, planned nuclear waste repository in, in Nevada. So the place where they were going to take all the, the leftover fuel the from spent fuel. Now, the spent fuel. Now take mm-hmm. us through a quick, a quick trot through the history of that. Uh, I mean, spent fuel, has it always been kept on site at the reactors as we grew more and more reactors? Mm-hmm. No one sent it off site. No one. Uh, there's a few companies, I think, in South Carolina where they, they own a number of plants, and they've taken some of their fuel, and they've put it, say, at one plant. So they've right. consolidated. But essentially, yes. It all exists on a plant somewhere. Exactly, yeah. In mm-hmm. pools, in containment pools. In pools and in kind of big concrete silos. Uh, protective. Filled with water? Uh, no. Just, it doesn't always have to be filled with water to make it— Correct. To, to, to take away the danger factor. That's right. It just needs— Why are the ones that are kept in water, for people who don't know anything about physics, why yeah. are they kept in water? Uh, it's essentially to cool them off. Um, so the water acts as a kind of a heat bath, and it takes away the heat from the fuel because it's very phys- it's physically hot temperature from a temperature perspective. It, well, once the nuclear reaction is over, they're still really, really hot. Sure. So it's like— it's like they don't, don't cool off for like a long time. Exactly. Yep. It's like your electric stove. You and know they're radioactive, it, and obviously. They are and so we need to very put Very radioactive. Point. So—, yeah. so when did the conversation begin as to spent fuel having to be stored at an external, quote-unquote, facility? When did that begin? The first discussions were very academic discussions probably in the 50s and 60s, um, but they weren't anything that was a practical solution for anybody. They knew this stuff had to go, back, had to go somewhere. They— They didn't know where it had to go, but scientists decided that the best place to put it was somewhere in the ground, to bury it in a mountain somewhere or something like that. It took the industry probably until the the mid-'80s and the government in the mid-'80s to really come up with a solution. So you're talking about kind of the peak of the nuclear power boom. And it's only then that Congress is passing a law that says, okay, we, we've got to figure out what to do with this stuff. So a lot of plants were built without any path for that fuel to, to go anywhere. Most plants really were built that way. Most lay people who understand this uh, only when it's written brightest in the headlines, Yucca Mountain is, mm-hmm. the, uh, is the name that, that comes to mind, as a facility that was designated in Nevada mm-hmm. uh, to store spent fuel. And describe for me the history of that enterprise. Well, that was a very, very political process. Why? Uh, because uh, nobody wants this stuff. And uh, back in the in the seventies, people tried to find a place in in the Midwest, and they couldn't. So Congress stepped in and said, "Well, we're going to solve it. We're going to come up with a an objective, fair set of criteria." And was it objective and fair? It, it started out that way, but it, as as most political things are, they wind up not being. Why? Yeah. How so? Because what was the danger to Nevada residents who've obviously had mm-hmm. their exposure from other uh, uh, Nevada residents are downwinders themselves, yeah. correct, mm-hmm. uh, from, for decades of mm-hmm. bomb testing in uh, uh, New Mexico and so forth. And then there were bomb tests in Nevada as well. In Las Vegas, that's right. right. Outside and of Las outside Vegas. Outside of Las mm-hmm. Vegas. Mm-hmm. So, so um, what was the danger to them? How far is Yucca Mountain from Las Vegas? It's about 90 miles from Las Vegas. So it's not that far. Not that far. And what's most important is that the highways that get you there all take you through Las Vegas. So all the fuel would have to be essentially transported so th- through Las Vegas. Was that a big issue? Well, there was the a very big issue. transportation yeah, of the fuel. Exactly. Yeah, the transportation. And kind of a sense on the Nevadans' part that they had done their part for the country. I mean, there's a lot of radioactive material buried in the Nevada desert from all the nuclear weapons tests that were done. So so people who—so uh, so elected officials, whether it be Reed or others— mm-hmm. 
and residents there who were advocates, they basically said, we've done enough. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. was, the, that was the viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And Reed was opposed to Yucca Reed Mountain. was opposed, yeah. And we, mm-hmm. even in spite of Reed's opposition, how much money was spent developing Yucca Mountain before they abandoned the project? It was billions of dollars. And how, how did that happen? Well, essentially, Congress passed a law that said, we don't care what Nevada thinks, and we're going to do it anyway. And they overrode any of Reed's protests That's or right. the indigenous protests, mm-hmm. and then they started to build this thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what essentially is it? They they dug a, a number of tunnels, <laughs> they did tests, and then it's now closed. So there's... Padlocks and gates uh, barring the entrance. Billions of dollars worth of tunnels. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. W- one tunnel, yeah, one or two tunnels, yeah. yeah. They would have stored the, facility, the, the material in several different, you know, kind of containment uh, uh, compartments yeah, there. So they would have dug it out like a cave and opened up the, the mountain and then brought the, the nuclear waste in over decades or actually over centuries and then kind of eventually just closed the gate and walked away, shut the door and... and all, and, not all maybe, but... Much of the spent fuel produced in the entire United States would be in one facility mm-hmm. 90 miles from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were there any other plans you heard or were there any other proposals you heard for what to do with spent fuel that you were excited by that you thought were worth investigating? In, in a lot of ways, the best alternative is probably to leave it where it is. You know, it really, I mean, there are some places where you don't want to keep it, you know, the, probably Indian Point, which is close to New York City. Um, so some of the fuel you want to move, you want to get it in, into maybe another location. Um, but, you know, they're really, it's, it, you know, it, it's like, it's, it's, there, there and you're not no, saying that just as a practical political concern, I mean, let everybody share in the yeah. risk. You, you think for, for, from an engineering standpoint, from a physics standpoint, it's better to leave it there. Yeah, I think it is right now. I mean, we certainly— Transporting it is dangerous. Transporting it adds risk, and we just, we don't have any place to put it. So right now it can and stay sealing it, it up in containers and putting it at the bottom of the ocean doesn't work. You know, you, I'm, not in, you, I'm not in favor. You could do of the it. Ocean as a <laughs> you could do it. It would wind up center. Yeah, it would eventually leak, and it would you leak. Know, eventually will. I mean, all containers you put stuff in, they so all. There's leak. no exception. Yeah, there's nothing just can there's, endure. There's nothing you can make that's gonna that's last going for to centuries. last forever. Last for millennia, well, which is millennia, what you need. Which is what you need. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. So you are working with Reed for four years. Mm-hmm. And you're working on Yucca Mountain for four yeah. years. Mm-hmm. All the inter- most of the four years you're there. Most of the four and years. When you yeah. leave Reed, where do you go? Uh, to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. To do what? I started out as a commissioner. So there's five people that make the decisions for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, I was one of those five. Um, it was a long, hard fight by Senator Reed to get me on that. Uh, on that. Why board. was it so hard? Because I was viewed, um, I had worked for Senator Reed, and before that, when I was the fellow, I worked for um, now Senator Ed Markey. Um, well, there you go. That, 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 that kind <laughs> you're of not going to make friends in any industry. No, certainly not in the nuclear industry. Too cozy with Ed Markey. I learned a lot from him, and then I worked, went to work for Senator Reed, who is almost the exact opposite personality. But they're both equally effective, just in completely different ways. And um, so I kind of went to the NRC with what I, what I kind of call the, the scarlet N for nuclear, um, because I worked for two of probably the biggest uh, antagonists to the nuclear industry in a way. Um, uh, Senator Reed because of his opposition to Yucca Mountain, and now Senator Markey because of his strong advocacy for nuclear safety. Uh, and so there was a lot of resistance to me joining the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You were viewed Commission. as someone who was not pro-industry. That's correct. And industry obviously exerts a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. not just on the regulations that are passed by the NRC, but the enforcement of those regulations. Mm-hmm. 
And then, of course, they influence who's on that commission, exactly. correct? They, or they try to exert some influence yeah. on that. Mm-hmm. So you, they, you, they do. They really do. How so? Uh, they're very influential in uh, working with senators to— Giving money to campaigns. And, and just these are positions that are—they are nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. So you have to get the okay of, of enough of really a majority of, a of senators. A partisan group of people. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so you were a commissioner of the NRC for how long? Uh, for about four years. And during that time, what was uh, something that that struck you as particularly troublesome or dramatic or noteworthy while you were on? Well, board? we were really dealing then with a lot of still a lot of the legacies of the nine eleven attack and nuclear security. So now, right? So now the security issue comes popping to the fore, yeah. if you will. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was two thousand five. Um, so it was still about four years um, after. So uh, it's roiling now. By the time you get in there, exactly. But what struck me is how long it was taking, and. You know, in a lot of ways, I would have thought that, okay, you know, problems were identified right after um, 9-11, and those problems should have been fixed within a couple of years. But one of the things you see in this industry is that everything takes longer and longer and longer. And some of that is, is just because the industry understands that if you delay things, the public outcry goes down, the interest among members of Congress goes down because they have a a shorter attention span than a lot of um, institutions. And so, you know, as time goes on, the impetus and the will to make reforms relaxes. So the longer you can take to do things, usually the better off it will be for, for the industry. And so I was surprised by how long this was still going on and how many things were still needing to be done. It was my, really my first exposure to this idea that, you know, the industry is, is going to have access and they're going to make arguments. And, you know, they're not unreasonable arguments, um, but they're not always necessarily, in my view, consistent with— Where is the industry—where are they right? Where, where, where anti-nuclear advocates think they're wrong, where do you think they're right? I think they are—I'm not sure that they're right and I'm not sure that they're wrong, but they have a fair point about the cost of what they're doing. And the way I always looked at my job— In terms job, of what? In terms of the, the realities of, um, you know, if, they're gonna, if we're going to require them to modify the plant, it's going to cost a certain amount of money. That money is going to be charged to the people who buy their electricity, and it's going to raise electricity rates. So that's a legitimate, in my mind, concern on their part because they're a company— That's and, more of a public service commission issue, though. I- exactly. Right. It's never the issue for the NRC. Right. And that was always where I drew the line. Um, while they may make those arguments, that's not really the argument that the NRC right. is responsible right. for. Then passing no. on the cost to ratepayers is not your issue. Exactly. It's not right. our issue. Right. But, you know, when you go and testify in front of Congress and a senator complains about how their electricity rates are going to go up and they're hearing from the utility, it's because of the NRC. There's that subtle pressure so on the, the agency. So these are the industry is passing on the buck to the NRC and saying that they're b- – because you're demanding that they do exactly. these safety things. Yeah. The average reactor was licensed for what period? Uh, 40 years initially. Right. And some of them – give me an example of someone who's extending that lease – Far beyond 40 years. Almost every plant in right. the country. They want what? 80. They, well, they want another 20, and now they're starting to ask for an, another 20 beyond that, right. so to go up to 80. I think that's too long. Um, I really do. I think you're starting to push the boundaries of equipment and material degradation, and just the performance is going to suffer. And we're seeing that. I mean, we know that, that that's happening. That's why— you're seeing plants shut down. You know, they say it's because electricity rates are, are so low because of natural gas. And, um, but it's really a combination of that combined with the fact that they have to make modifications to the plant because they're getting old. 
So I, I never think this issue of economics, it's, it's never separated from safety. It's always very, very closely related to safety because the reason nuclear power is expensive is because of all the safety systems you need to make it safer. Are there models on the drawing board that are smaller and safer? There, there are models that are smaller. I'm not sure that anybody's actually produced a detailed design that's safer. But when you build them smaller, you start to really run out of a, a use for them. It, it's almost like building, you know, somebody saying, well, you know, s- long-haul semis. Um, they'd get much better gas mileage if they were a lot smaller and they were, say, the size of a pickup truck. But you can't haul as much cargo with a small pickup truck as you can with a big semi. So four years as a commissioner mm-hmm. from 2005 to 2009? Yep. And then what happens? Uh, then I became chairman. Okay. Now, how did that happen? Uh, so Senator Reid um, advocated and lobbied the president. and, uh, and Obama I, is president at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, president Obama. That's the only way yeah. you're getting in. Right. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I became uh, chairman. And, um, and then— What did you want to do when you became chairman? You know, what was your I, agenda? Uh, improve safety. Uh, make, Specifically how? Restore— These flooding things like in Nebraska, addressing those issues? You know, I actually—the first thing I did as chairman is I sat down, and I took a bunch of staff together in the agency, and I said, tell me what we need to do. What are all the issues that we need to work on and we need to focus they knew. on? They knew. They knew. And I came up with actually this really long plan. Who was your predecessor? Uh, it was a man named Dale Klein. And he was appointed by— uh, President Bush. Pro-industry. Uh, Pro-industry. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I was, here I was this, um, you know, really, if anything, you could characterize me as agnostic about nuclear technology and uh, put in this position now to lead. I was the youngest chairman uh, in the history of the agency. And my first job was to ask everybody what we should do for safety. And I tell you, it caused a lot of waves. Um, Why? Uh, because people didn't want to know the answer. Uh, the, my colleagues on the commission who were— um, uh, Bush appointees? Bush, uh, Bush of appointees, the other, yeah, of the other Both four. Republicans. Um, there were essentially two at the time when I started as chairman, two Republicans. Oh, there typically are five? Yeah, but because of the problems Political in process? Washington, it, it sometimes gets down to fewer than five. And so, oh, so when you when you were on the board, yeah. you were one of three? Yes, I was one of four, and then very quickly another left. And so then when I became chairman— um, the other two were Republicans. The other two Bush were Republicans. Bush appointees. Yes, correct. And they were uh, not happy with you being elevated to chairman. I was naive uh, about that. Um, and I knew there was a lot of opposition to me, um, but I just chalked it up to the— it's just the process. Right. It's, it's just, a game. It's a game. Yeah, there's the back and forth and the tussle and the tug of war. And then, you know. And so then, if you play rugby, then you shake hands. Yeah, exactly. But these guys really didn't want to shake hands with you. They so far, nobody. They wanted to rip your arm off. They, they haven't yet wanted to shake my hand. Right. So, um, and they, they didn't when I was there. And the first thing then was I had the audacity to kind of come up with a list of things that we needed to focus on and do. You actually and, wanted to be the chairman of the of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I, I, I wanted to <laughs> be what I thought it was. <laughs> so, <laughs> you had the audacity to try to regulate the nuclear that's industry. That's right, I did. And you had a list of things. And what was the most problematic for them? What was the one that they just couldn't believe? You what know, tipped your hand that you were a communist? I— uh, I think it was tone more than anything. Right. It was just talking about so Everybody issues. knew the list of things. They were yeah. present. I'll give, I'll give you an example of a story. Um, so one of the first things that happened when I, when I started as chairman, um, the, the agency had been reviewing the design for a new reactor for a very long time, uh, a reactor by Westinghouse. Uh, so it's intended to be a new design that would be built and, in fact, is being built right now. But the staff was having some problems. These are the agency employees, the kind of the nuts and bolts, the the, the workers in the in at the NRC. 
And they were worried because there was a safety problem, they thought, with this, with this plant, and they wanted it fixed. So they came and they sat down in my office and they said, you know what, we're, we're exasperated. We can't get Westinghouse to listen to us. They won't make changes. We're at our wit's end. We're going to send them a letter that essentially says, if you don't change things, we're done. We're not going to review this anymore. We don't think it's safe. I said, great. I'll support you. I'll back you up. Let's do a press release. So we did this. We issued the press release. And then um, uh, I think it was a week or so or a couple days later, I was going to a big industry conference. And uh, it was, I thought, a very important conference. I gave a speech, talked about a number of safety issues. But I, I walked in. There's always a reception before that. And I walked into the reception. It was almost like I was Moses and the sea had parted. <laughs> All the industry people just looked at me and kind of moved away. Like you were a leper. Exactly. And, um, and then slowly, you know, I would mingle and people would come up to me and talk to me. And uh, because at the end, they're all just people. But basically what I heard was, you know, we didn't have any problem with you having the staff send this letter to Westinghouse. We actually thought it was a good idea because, you know, some of the folks in the industry were thinking Westinghouse wasn't paying attention. But what they said was, but why'd you have to do a press release? Why'd you have to make it public that there was a problem? And to me, that was just a reflection of, of kind of the relationship that had developed where problems were not talked about the public needs and publicized. To, uh, it's on an as-need-to-know basis. Exactly, yeah. You're one of us. We need to keep this quiet. We'll yeah. work it out between our, you know, behind closed doors ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Don't you know that that's what people in your position do? Right, exactly. And that was what I, what I was told. I was flabbergasted. Transparency was something that was important to you. Very important. The public having some knowledge and also a knowledge that you were doing your job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what I told them. I said, you know, I have a responsibility to this agency. Why is it okay when we do, when we issue you a license to build a plant? You want a big public ceremony. Right. But when we, you know, right. have a concern, then you want all of that the has rewards to be done quietly. and none of the responsibility. Yeah. Now, this was how early on in your tenure? This was very early within the first couple months. And then be things unravel, is it safe to say? I think what really started to create the problems was when the Fukushima nuclear accident happened. Explain. This is, uh, yeah, and this is in 2011. Uh, and um, there's a major nuclear accident in Japan. Right. And uh, I got thrust into responding to this uh, as part of the U.S. government's team. And the NRC became really a big player in, in dealing with this accident. And we made a number of decisions about what people should do, Americans in particular in Japan. And, and um, they were a little bit more conservative decisions than what the Japanese government was saying for their people. And that, that created some blowback. The first thing that I said was that Americans need to stay 50 miles away from that reactor. And um, in the United States, we don't tell people to stay 50 miles away from reactors. We tell them in an, in an emergency, essentially, they have to plan to stay about 10 miles away. And that's a big problem because you take a plant like Indian Point, which is about 35 miles from where we are here, um, that's well within 50 miles. So that started to create this. I can imagine what was happening was that all my colleagues on the commission were getting calls from the industry saying, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? And this was not a decision that I, that I made with my colleagues on the commission. It was done in my role and responsibility as chairman. I started getting um, questions from senators, uh, very pro-industry senators. Why was I not telling my colleagues on the commission what I was doing, which I was telling them. And so it just spiraled into this, this chaos of, of confusion and innuendo. And there are hearings. And there are hearings. There's a congressional hearing. Uh, who was who, the chair of those hearings? Daryl Issa uh, actually uh, chaired a <laughs> hearing um, 
about my management style at the NRC. So, which, you know, if you think about all the useful ways that Congress can spend its time trying to understand how the NRC is managed doesn't seem to be one of them. Well, to have a a trial uh, and to be persecuted by Daryl Issa, that's a... (laughs) When I watch this documentary, which shows this hearing, and it actually shows a view from where the Congress people look down to the witnesses, and I was one of the witnesses... And that was the first time I ever saw what I looked like during these hearings because, of course, I'm not watching my face. And I'd never gone back to look at a TV broadcast or anything. And I, when I saw the documentary for the first time, I was shocked. I, I realized I didn't have a good poker face at all. <laughs> and right. uh, I was just – I was angry. I was confused. I was outraged. Offended. Offended. Um, the accusations that were being made about me and, right. um, and, and really the triviality of the whole thing. That at the end of it, there were conflicts over policy, and in a way, those were difficult conflicts. But they were conflicts in a way we were supposed to have because these were serious issues, and a serious accident had happened. Then they accused me of um, probably the worst accusation was that I was abusive to women, which was just so ridiculous that I couldn't even fathom that somebody would say this right. about me. I mean, to me, it was just farcical. It was hard. I had I had a. a group of um, 16 uh, personal staff that kind of worked directly in my office. And none of them corroborated that? No, of course not. And, none of them. Uh, and half of them were women. But, but that it, was the low point. Yeah, that was definitely the low point. Yeah, yeah. But, you and know, you resigned? I resigned then that following summer. So this happened around Christmas or in December 2011, Nothing. and then I resigned in June of 2012. Was that hard for you to do? It was very hard for me to do. But did you yeah. feel it was in the best interest of the organization? Is that why you did it? Yeah, I did it. It, it was, had become a distraction. It was in Senator Reid's best interest um, because he still had an interest, I think, in trying to help make sure the NRC was doing its job. And he came to me and, and suggested that that might be a good time to, really? to step down. And I realized at, at that point, I had done a lot. I had gotten in a set of reforms after the accident. And this is also what generated a lot of the opposition was I was very aggressive in pushing for reforms. Uh, we got a group of people at the NRC to do a study of what we needed to fix. And it was, in my mind, a very, very reasonable answer that they came up with. Um, and I pushed to get that full report implemented. And of course, you know, the industry chopped at it, commissioners chopped at it, and everybody kind of tore it apart. Um, but I pushed, and we got a lot of that done. And so once once I had done that, you know, there I— You felt you had accomplished something. I had felt I had accomplished something, yeah. And um, it, was, it was time. Now, you have a unique vantage point mm-hmm. from your job and from your career at the overall picture of energy in yeah. this country. And where do you see this country 20 and 30 and 50 years from now in a doable way, mm-hmm. not some pie-in-the-sky way? Where do you see us ending up energy-wise? What's going to happen to our energy uh, picture? It's going to be more localized, and it's going to be more renewables. We build really big power plants, and then we build really big transmission lines, and we ship all that power where we need it, to homes, to businesses, I think what's going to happen over time is that more and more electricity is going to be generated at your home, in your local community. It's, it's going to be cheaper. It's more resilient from a security standpoint. It's more resilient against natural hazards. Battery storage will be a big piece of it. I mean, one of the interesting— Conductivity will get better? Well, one of the things that's really unique, if, you, if, if we, you, we don't think about yet, is that let's say everybody starts driving their cars with electric cars. So one of the things you can do, you drive your car all day, it charges up the battery, you get home, 
you plug that car in. Now you're not necessarily charging the battery from your home, but using the battery as kind of a buffer to back up your electricity at home when maybe the sun's not shining anymore, the wind's not blowing anymore. And so you've got this potentially this massive fleet of batteries that's going to be out there, uh, and you can use that. So I think the systems aren't really there yet, but we're getting close. And I, and I think with the rapid pace of technological change, we can't even envision yet how we're going to have electricity in the future. I, I really think that. But I, I think we're not going to have it the way we have it now. And the, the analogy I always think about is I think about hot water, right? You, you could easily have designed our entire water system so that you have big power plants that make hot water and ship that hot water in pipes to your house and you turn on the hot water and the hot water comes out. But that's not the way we did it. The way we did it is we built hot water heaters in the home. So when you turn on the, the water to get your hot water, it's being produced locally. And, on, and again, the key being, we don't have to achieve 100% saturation right. where every sphere in the country is covered by what they can, they, they can produce. Right. All we have to do is knock down consumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All we have to do is knock down oil consumption by 50%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what a triumph that would be. We don't have to right. replace it. We're never right. going to replace it. Right. We're never, do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think about carbon dioxide limits and greenhouse gas limits, we're not talking about getting to zero carbon dioxide emissions. We're talking about reducing by 20, 30, 40, 50%. So you'd have to completely replace some of these older technologies. You just have to replace a portion of them. Gregory Yasko is finishing a book on nuclear power and working to create a company to develop offshore wind facilities. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios. WNYC Studios.